General, thank you very much for a very kind introduction, and it, it is great to be back in Ohio. I, I live in Alabama today. Uh, I haven't learned to say y'all in a convincing way, but uh, it is great to be back here in Ohio. Uh, it's especially great to come back to this museum, because uh, when I was on the faculty at Ohio State and Denison, I used to bring my students here, because there's so much heritage and so much that's important to the United States, not just the Air Force, but to the country that's preserved in this wonderful site, and, and uh, you're all better off to have this in your backyard. It's, uh, it's, I bring my international officers up here as many times as I can to come and hear it, just because it's, it's such a wonderful place. What I'm going to do tonight, though, is talk to you about something that doesn't involve airplanes, um, although I'm, I'm an airplane fan. I, that came out when I went to the museum. I was like a kid. I'm going to talk about the Middle East because it's something that I've been doing for the past uh, 12, 15 years when the Air Force said to me, we need someone to help us understand more about the Middle East. We need to send you there. We need to help you learn Arabic. We need to help you untangle these mysteries. And I said, I'll give it my best shot. And that's what I've been doing for most of my professional life uh, since that time. I don't come here with an agenda. I don't have a hobby horse. I don't have uh, a, polit a political favorite. My job is an analyst. And I try to sift through all the information, and I try to draw the conclusions that the information supports. And I guess the only good thing I feel is that I've been criticized by both the left and the right. I've been criticized by the Arabs, by the Israelis, by everybody else. And so I think I'm sort of starting to get it right. Uh, I may get some criticism tonight, too, and that's fine. Because if I was smart enough to know everything about the Middle East, I, I would probably in Washington, well, maybe not, uh, I'd be happier here. What I'd like to do tonight, I'd like to talk about Arabs. Arabs are not the only population in the Middle East, but they're the biggest pop population. They're the areas that we are currently struggling with. And so what I'd like to do is to talk initially about Arab culture, Arab identity, who the Arabs are. I find a lot of people really aren't sure. Uh, I even find the Arabs aren't sure about their identity. I have been given different stories about who we are by Arabs. And then I'd like to talk about how Arab identity affects Arab politics, how it affects economic development. I'd like to talk a little bit about Arabs and Islam. I'm not going to explain the mysteries of Islam to you because that would take a long time. But Islam as a political statement is important for us to integrate with Arab identity. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about Arab futures. And I'm going to do this in 45 to 50 minutes because I do want to leave time for some questions and some comments. So uh, please, uh, please feel free to ask questions and comments once we go through. Who are Arabs and what shapes their identity? What tells them who they are and what tells them who we are? We identify Arabs through their language. Arabs are people whose natural and native language is Arabic. Again, that's not everybody in the Middle East, but it's an important source of identity. Arabic is a wonderful old language that goes way, way back to we're not sure how long. We think it came from the Arabian Peninsula. It traveled up the Arabian Peninsula and ultimately got spread to much of the Arab world through the Arab conquest that began after the death of the Prophet in about 632 in the Common Era. But Arabic language is only one thing that shapes Arab perspectives. There are a lot of other things that do. And let's turn to a map and look at where the Arab world is. Now, these are the countries that are predominantly overwhelmingly Arabic. Now, some would call Mauritania an Arab country, but these are the countries that have had the Arab tradition that came here from the Arabian Peninsula and migrated all the way across to Morocco. They got here to Morocco in 711, so they've been there a long time. So the language is deeply rooted there. It goes all the way across to the Arabian Peninsula, 
up through the Arabian Gulf, and all the way up here to the Turkish border, and of course, the southern part of the Mediterranean. More than 300 million people who live here. The commonality is Arabic, and the identity is Arabic. I have gotten into arguments and discussions and debates with people in Morocco about places over here, and they're just as passionate, they care just as deeply as do the people here or down here. And so that commonality, that sense of the Arab cause is our cause, is an overriding identity. Having said that, it's easy to think that this is all the Arab world, and they're all alike, and they're not. For example, this part, the North African part, is the Maghrib, very much influenced by the French, very much influenced by the earlier Berbers, and contact still today with Europe. Look at how close they are, simply across the Mediterranean. Yes, they're Arabs, but their identity of Arabs is tempered by the fact that they also look to Europe. Contrast that with the Levant, Eastern Mediterranean. This part of the Arab world is the heir to some of the great civilizations of history, from the Nile Valley, the eastern, uh, the, the Fertile Crescent, ancient Mesopotamia, things that go back to 4000 BC, and they're deeply proud of that culture. They regard other Arabs as bereft of that culture. I have heard somewhat unkind comments made by the people who live here about the people who live in the next region, the Arabian Peninsula. This is the most conservative part of the Arab world because it is also the one that is most isolated from the rest of the world. I have snuck down here into this area here between the mountains of Saudi Arabia and Yemen, and I found people who live in villages that haven't been touched by anything beyond the seventh century. You can't get there except down a rope ladder. That's how different it is from some of the places I'm going to show you. And so there are differences in the Arab world. But there is a common bond of language and experience. There's another couple of things that I want to highlight. We all know that Arabs live in the desert. If you ask people about Arabs, they'll tell you they live in the desert. That's true. Although most Arabs, the majority of Arabs, don't live in the desert anymore. But this place, all the way across here, is desert. All the way down here, this, by the way, is where those Star Wars movies were filmed. If you remember those early Star Wars movies, that's what it looks like. It looks like that planet Tatooine, which is, by the way, a little village down here. It's desert almost all the way across here. Over 90% of this region is covered by desert. Now, what does that mean? It means a very different culture from the one we in the West are used to, okay? And I'm going to make that point in, in the next discussion. It does not include Iran. The Arab world does not include Iran. A majority of members of Congress didn't know that. <laughs> Tell me you're not surprised. <laughs> a majority of members of Congress don't know that. They don't know the difference between the Sunni and the Shia. They get paid to know that. But Iran is a Persian-speaking country whose differences with the Arab world go back to the early 600s. And they're deeply rooted and they haven't gone away, and they're getting worse. Iran does not include, or the Arab world does not include Turkey. Turkey is not part of the Middle East in their world. In fact, it's not a part of the Middle East in Turkey. The Turks will tell you we're part of Europe, and that's our identity. We speak Turkish, we don't speak Arabic. And by the way, we ruled those guys since the early part of the 16th century for most of the Arab world. So the Arab world does not include Turkey. Turkey, in fact, is sometimes a problem. And, of course, it doesn't include Israel. 
over 20% of Israel's population, native, I mean, Israelis with passports, are Arabs. Okay, this is the Arab world. Things that shape their identity. The desert is a harsh, harsh, harsh mistress. My grandfather came to Iowa in the 19th century. Nine feet of topsoil, water, rainfall. A single farmer with a plow and a mule could make a living, and he did. He didn't even speak English, but he was able to make a living. If you think about America and what we have, we have the culture of the Enlightenment, we had abundant soil, we have abundant water, timber, minerals, everything. If, if you were going to put a country someplace, this would be the place. The point is that our environment fosters the notion of rugged individualism. It's the basis of our economic system, it's the basis of our political system. But the desert has very different demands. A rugged individual in the desert will die. Everything is done collectively. Everything is done by community, by tribe, by village and tribal elder. When the sheikh says there's no more grass, it's time to move the herd, you move or you die. Water, many of these parts in the, in the, on that map that I showed you don't have water. The water comes from the rivers. They flow out of Turkey, they flow out of Africa. Managing the waters is about life. It has to be done collectively. So when the emir, the king, the pharaoh, somebody said, we're going to manage water, we're going to build canals and dams and dikes and ponds and you're all going to be mobilized, you either did it or you died. That's the autocracy of the desert. It produces a very different culture, a culture of autocracy, a culture of command, a culture of community rather than rugged individualism. Well, again, most Arabs don't live in the desert anymore. They live in big cities. But that culture is still there. And what it has fostered, in part, is the autocratic governments of today. The second, the Arabs will tell you it was the British and the French who came and took their future away. Not really. It began with the Mongols back in 1258 who sacked Baghdad and Damascus and destroyed the great Arab empires. But then the Turks came in. The Ottoman Turks came in, beginning in 1519, uh, in, the, in the early part of the 16th century, and they took over all of the Arab world with the exception of Morocco. And they governed it for so long that in many cases, the Arabs simply forgot the art of governance. When the Turks were defeated in World War I, they were replaced by the British, the French, the Italians, the Spanish, a little piece. And once independence came about, after World War II, for almost all these countries, nobody knew how to govern. What did they do? They borrowed ideas from Europeans, from some of the universities they had gone to school. Now, why did they not borrow from the British and the French? Ideas about democracy and, and, and free enterprise. They hated the British and the French because they were the colonial masters. They borrowed from the Italians, they borrowed from the Germans. The idea of Ba'ath socialism, the underpinnings of Saddam Hussein's Iraq, the underpinnings of Hafez al-Assad and now Bashar al-Assad's Syria came directly from Mussolini. They wanted to make the trains run on time. They wanted to organize and collectivize their economy and move rapidly into the 20th century. What they didn't understand was they were borrowing systems that were quite frankly bankrupt. 
But unlike Italy and Germany, those systems are still in the Middle East today in many cases, and I'll come back to that point. This is controversial. I want to try it out on you. I'll take credit or blame for this. But I think when we think of our identity as Americans, and I'm generalizing, but I think one of the things that we think about in terms of who we are is we're winners. We think about things, the most basic, our national anthem, it's about winning. Our, our emphasis on who we are relative to other countries, it's about winning. And I'm going to make a comparison between what we are, what we think we are, and what Arabs think they are. Gross generalizations, I'm going to generalize across 16 different countries and a large swath across the United States. But let's try this. Things you learned as a child, things you learned in school, things that are true in some cases. Our mythology, we won most of our wars. Not all, but most. My mother told me we never lost a war in our history. I had to come back and explain Vietnam after I got back. I'm sorry. We won the West. That's part of our mythology. We won the West. We're proud of that. Look at the record we have on Olympic Games. We pay attention to it, especially after the Soviet Union went away. Look at the record we have here. Nobel Prizes, 270. We've got more than twice as many as our nearest competitors, the British. World's top 25 universities, we've got half. And should you care, we've got more Forbes 400 billionaires than any other country. In fact, more than others. Now let's look at the Arab world. Lost almost every war since 1258. It's a sad record. I've sat down in their war colleges and study war, and they study a lot the wars that came before 1258. Okay. <laughs> It's a, it is. It's a sad record, and we'll, we'll come back to that. They lost Spain. They lost Persia. They lost Sicily. Parts that used to be part of the Arab world are now part of Europe. No Arab country has placed higher than 23rd in the last six Olympic Games. And in fact, if you really want to see what their record is, this is it. Let's see how they do in China. Morocco was the best finishing Arab country at 44th in 2004. Algeria, 40th. Syria, 50th in 96. They were outdone by Trinidad, Tobago, by Ghana, by Jamaica. Countries that are much poorer than many Arab countries. It, it's, it's a tough thing for them. No Arab country ranks in the top 21 for Nobel Prizes. Egypt, four. Throughout the history of the Nobel, two for peace, by the way, two for peace. Um, world's top 25 universities, none. And 14 Forbes, 400 billionaires. What does this mean? Here's what I think it means. Again. Permit me to generalize, but I think we as Americans have a generally positive outlook on life. We expect things to get better. And when they don't, we're disappointed. We, out, we oust the political leadership and we vote in somebody else. For us, history's okay, but the future is what really matters. We don't dwell on the past as much as we dwell on the future because we expect it to be better. Political change is good. We have a very competitive political system because our system is based on the ideas of of Locke, of Rousseau, of Jefferson, of, of Montesquieu, of Burke, people who said political competition brings the best out. Winning is good. Elections are good because they produce winners. And we suffer through them, or we enjoy them. You're, work hard, move up. We expect to do better than our parents. We expect our kids to do better than we do. It's just part of the American mythology, and in many cases, it's true. Outlook on life in the Arab world, I sit down and I ask my friends in the Arab world, how are you doing? Oh, things aren't so good. The government's corrupt. 
oil prices are down. I, you know, the, the, I can't get a job for my cousin because it's all clogged with favorites of the president. Things aren't good. History is fluid but absolutely important. I cannot underemphasize the importance that Arabs place on their history and a very select history. When I could go to Syria, I would take my students, my Air Force Colonel students, into this wonderful old coffee shop near the old Umayyad Mosque in Damascus. We'd go in there at night, and they were they welcomed us. They love Americans, by the way. And they'd clear the table away, and in would come the water pipes, and it's okay to smoke them, and the coffee, and <laughs> then there would come the storyteller. And he would tell these wonderful stories in Arabic. And it would be all about Salah al-Din, the, the great Kurdish conqueror. He wasn't an Arab, but okay. The conqueror of the Crusaders. And everybody in the room knew the stories, and they would applaud. And we're the Crusaders. That's their mythology. We're the British. We're the Mongols. We step into the same shoes as the parents in Iraq who said, if you don't go to sleep at night, the Mongols are coming. That'll get you to sleep. They still remember. Political change leads to disorder. The political philosophy that you hear in the Arab world, even though they don't articulate it, is a wonderful Tunisian philosopher named Ibn Khaldun. He wrote a wonderful book uh, about change. And he said, every change, every success is followed by failure. Every empire is followed by decay. Life is a cycle. It's not linear like we think. And you get the sense, why try? Work hard, the future is limited. I sat down and drank tea once with a Saudi Arabian fighter pilot. And he told me, my grandfather trudged across the desert at two and a half miles an hour on a camel. And today I fly across it at 500 miles an hour. My grandson will walk across it at two and a half miles an hour on a camel. That's not optimism. That's not the sense that the future is ours to take and it's going to be better. And I hear that a lot. Much of this observation, by the way, is based on me getting out away from the security people and just talking to people in the cities and the villages because that's what I love to do. That's where you learn these things. Yeah, I read, but get out and talk to people. You get the sense that there's this, this humiliation, this blame, this almost loss of... I go walking in these wonderful cities in, in Cairo and Damascus and Rabat and Sana'a and Algiers, and just wonderful old historical cities. And I wander around and I ask myself at night, what a great place, but why don't they sweep the streets? Why don't they fix the elevators that don't work? Why don't they repair the fighter planes that they bought from us at great cost that don't fly anymore? You get that sense that the, the optimism that we have just isn't there. And there's almost a sense of defeat. Well, what about the Israelis? Well, we'll deal with them later. The most important message I can pass on is the sense that it was the outsiders who brought about this state. It was the Mongols, it was the Turks, it was the British, it was the French, and now it's us who deprived them of their future because we were there so long and we took so much away from them. We're always puzzled about this, the Palestinian situation. It's not just about the Israelis. It's the Palestinians symbolize for the Arab person in the street, their own fate. Half of them live as refugees. They're stateless. They can't agree. They're well-educated, but they have no future. Average Palestinian is better educated than the average Israeli, but they have no jobs because of the corruption, because of the occupation, because of, because of. It symbolizes something bigger in the Arab world, and we don't always recognize that. 
Why do you care so much about the Palestinians? Is it because you hate the Jews? No. It's because they're like us. They represent us. I cannot underemphasize how different the situation is today from what it used to be in the golden era of age. I believe this. Most of the ideas that we inherited from the Europeans came from the Arab world. I'm going to go through this quickly because there's just so much. Measurement. Back to the pre-Arab times. Did you know this? Back 4,000 years, 24 hours, 60 minutes, 60 seconds. Seasons. Between 858 and 929, the calculation of seasons. Look at this. Between 938 and 1013, El-Zohari, the father of modern medicine, his textbooks were in circulation in Europe until the 1950s. He was so advanced. And this is a small piece of what he did. The first hospital in Damascus, the first pharmacies in Baghdad in 754. We were grinding up roots. The thought of Aristotle was rediscovered and distilled and blended in with Arab philosophy. And it became the basis for modern Western thought, including fundamental pieces of modern Christianity as it filtered into Spain and reached the Christian world through Europe. Insurance, law, mathematics. Europeans couldn't pronounce this guy's name, so they called him algorithmus. That's where the word algorithm comes from. Uh, I can't pronounce it either very well, but the first book in algebra, look at that. You have him to blame. The Latin alphabet, there's a wonderful little stone in the museum in Damascus. It's about that big, and it's got 26 letters on it. And you can recognize them. They're the basis for our alphabet. It's why we don't write in characters. They contribute our alphabet. It went into Latin and Amoraic and, and Phoenician. All of these things. Social science. When Europeans were philosophizing about how many teeth a horse had, the Arabs were observing them. Long before Francis Bacon and the other great scientists, the Arabs were doing science in some of the great cities in the world. The first university, Al-Azhar University, opened in 969. It was just there a few weeks ago. It's still there. Stellar motion, astronomy, the Andromeda galaxy without a telescope. And since we're here in the capital of aviation, how many of you knew that Ibn Furnis built the first glider 600 years before Da Vinci and flew it? We know he flew it because like most pilots on their first flight, he crashed and broke his back. 600 years before Da Vinci. But it's now gone. This great period that the Arabs are so intensely proud of is gone. It went away for all kinds of reasons. It went away because of the Mongols, because of Tamerlane. It also went away because of corruption, because of a loss of, of faith, a loss of effort, constant war with the Byzantines. But what happened was a constant decline in power and prestige in the Arab world until it has reached the state it has today. We talk about Arab politics. What we see is the persistence autocratic states, well, democratization is blooming in the rest of the world. These people came to power in independence, borrowed the ideas 
of fascist Europe in many cases, nationalism, Commonwealth of Abdel Nasser. He handpicked the people who followed him, and Hosni Mubarak, chief of the Air Force, is today. Hafez al-Assad, his son, is now the president. Abdulaziz al-Saud, who founded the country named after him in the 1920s and 30s. His son is the king today. He's 84 years old. And Muammar al-Qaddafi, who's grooming his son to take over. They're all autocrats. They're all autocrats. There's very little democracy here because these guys came in and established the organs of power and they simply stayed. And the other reality is that in a couple of cases, we have supported these particularly autocratic governments. The result is that democracy is not on the rise. And if we look at the percentage of the world's population that lives under free conditions as ranked by Freedom House, it's a New York-based organization that measures freedom in the world. In the world, 46% of people live in free countries. Almost half the world's population live in free countries. There's democracy, there's accountability, there's competitive elections, there's transparency in some form or another. Okay, 36% don't, but what's that? Called China. In the Middle East and North Africa, not just the Arab world, but in the Middle East and North Africa, there is one free country with 6% of the population of the Middle East, and that would be Israel. Partly free countries, 33% of the population of the Middle East lives in partly free countries, but look at this. Close to two-thirds of the population of the Middle East lives in countries that are not free. Now, when we go Arab, this is the list. Partly free, not free. Now, I would dispute this a little bit. Algeria did have a successful presidential election in 2004. Egypt had a presidential election that was actually contested. Okay, the president got 86% of the vote and arrested the runner-up and put him in jail, and he's still there. But <laughs> it, it's not. Iraq has tried. A lot of Iraqis risk their lives voting. But the problem is that the insurgency has kept democracy from really spreading outside most of Baghdad. And that's a tragedy. But in some of these other countries, excuse me, in some of these other countries, um, democracy has not advanced. In Saudi Arabia, in Qatar, in Oman. Uh, in Oman, it's a reasonably peaceful country. It's a tolerant country. But the sultan, there's a sultan in Oman, runs the parliament, runs the executive branch, runs the court system. Uh, in other countries, there just is no... In fact, democracy in Tunisia has actually walked backwards. Why? Why this deficit? Why is this part of the world so lagging in democracy when we see it erupting in Asia and Latin America and Central Europe? And, and I'll offer you some answers. You can't have democracy without knowledge. Look at this. This from the Arab Human Development Report. Look at this. This, by the way, is a report authored by Arabs. This is not me. This is authored by Arabs. Less than 53 newspapers per 1,000 Arab citizens compared to 285 papers per 1,000 people in developed countries. 18 computers per 1,000. World average is 78. Internet access is limited. And here's why. In many cases, the governments control communication. In democracies, communications must be free. 
Otherwise, how do you have a free exchange of ideas that allows for competitive democracy? But look at this, again, from the Arab Human Development Report. Look down here at cable TV. This is full monopoly. 100% of the cable TV in the Arab world, full monopoly. Satellite links. You can see it here for yourself. If the government controls communications, you will only get what the government wants you to hear, which is one of the reasons why when they do have elections, the president wins 90 or 95%, or in the case of Bashar al-Assad, 98% of the vote, which has happened next week. I can tell you what the outcome is. It's also about oil. Not all Arab countries are oil-producing countries. But in those that do, that depend on oil revenues for more than 30% of the economy, none of the oil-producing countries in the Arab world are democratic. Oil and democracy just don't mix. And that's not only true in the Arab world. Look at the backsliding in Venezuela as Hugo Chavez increasingly pushes the country towards totalitarianism. Once a democracy. Nigeria, elections are a sham. Most oil-producing countries, with the exception of those that already were democracies, like the Netherlands or Britain, have not achieved democratic status. Why? Because the oil money flows to the government, and the government uses it to buy off the opposition. Second, they don't tax their population because they don't need to. The money simply comes in. You don't have to worry about taxing. Now, before you say what's wrong with that, ask yourself this. What is one of the most basic pieces about democracy? It's accountability. When it's our money, we expect the government to spend it as we wish. Otherwise, we throw them out. If you don't have taxes, you lose that measure of accountability. So, okay, the Sultan just built another palace. I don't care, it's not my money. I'm not gonna do anything. A majority of Arab terrorists come from oil-producing countries. And this one piece of bad news. We don't fix this. We've got some big challenges ahead. Oil is not the future for Iraq for these reasons. Gender empowerment. Not all Arab countries discriminate against women. But this, a measure of gender empowerment, is about women's access to protection from the law, the right to vote, the right to run for office. Those measures, it's done by the United Nations, okay? Now, this is a bit, because the, this measure hasn't been done in a while. But as the latest measure we saw, you can see Arab countries down here, second only to Sub-Saharan Africa. If you disenfranchise half your population, you can't become democratic. We'll see similar problems in economic development. This according to the World Bank. This just came out. Arabs have the highest level of poverty in the world. You may think of Arab states and you think about Dubai. We'll talk about Dubai later on. But I have been to places where the poverty is so deep, so enrooted, so hopeless, that you simply can't believe it. Parts of Cairo. I've wandered around in parts of Cairo, places the embassy would like me not to go, or the government would like me not to go. Yemen, where I've seen little eight-year-old children rummaging through garbage cans out of school because there's not enough school. This is a reality. Here's another. This is simply a fact. In 2006, the total economic, economic uh, activity in all Arab countries combined was less than that of Italy. That includes all those wealthy Gulf countries. Their comparison, their window to Europe, this is what they see. It's a problem. Why? 
Because when Nasser and when Hafez al-Assad and Muammar al-Khrafi and, and, and Ibn al-Saud came to power, what did they do? They established strong state sectors. They did what the Russians did. They established the Ministry of Cement and the Ministry of Shipbuilding and the Ministry of Steel. Big, inefficient, uncompetitive organizations that were designed essentially to simply give jobs. But they weren't competitive, and they're not competitive. We would go into some of these countries and see, oh, look at the progress. They're building new buildings. No, they're building no more, more bureaucracies. Bureaucracies are not a way for economic growth, particularly in Syria, where the average Syrian bureaucrat in an eight-hour day works 17 and a half minutes, <laughs> according to Syrian statistics. I had a Syrian tell me that. High state subsidies, look at this. Two-thirds of the national budget in Egypt, and I just came back from Egypt. I just got this figure. I got it from Egyptian sources. Two-thirds of the national budget goes to subsidies. What do they subsidize? They subsidize bread. They subsidize gasoline. They subsidize sugar. Gasoline in Cairo is 70 cents a, a liter. Very inexpensive compared to anywhere else in the world. Why do they do that? Because it buys political peace. But what are the consequences? Every penny that I put into subsidies to buy political peace is money that I can't spend on the future to improve my education, my infrastructure, my communications, my universities, my health care. It's simply being wasted on subsidies. And every time we say to them, you've got to quit subsidizing, they take us to this building, pockmarked with full of bullet holes, and they say, this is where the bread riots happened the last time you told us to do this. Got it. Oil production. For those countries that have oil, it crowds out other economic activity. It's not a good source of jobs. Once you've done the infrastructure, you turn the valve open, the valve flows, the oil flows, it goes into the tankers and it goes off somewhere. It's not a good source of jobs. There's very little future in an oil economy. But it generates instant revenue. And these three things here are so important that this is the oil, by the way. And this is, here's Saudi Arabia down here. 25% of the world's proven reserves are in Saudi Arabia. There could be a lot more, by the way. I was in Saudi Arabia a few weeks ago. Their measured proved reserves 156 billion barrels. We sat down with somebody and said, okay, tell us how much oil you really have. He said, with advanced recovery techniques, we may have 700 billion barrels. Whoa. They haven't said that because that would have a bad effect on oil prices. The countries, though, with the X's, these are Arab countries, and you can see that the top three Sources of oil are Arab countries, and then you add Libya, Qatar, Algeria, uh, Oman here, not very much, but that's an awful lot of oil. And we'll talk about that. I cannot underemphasize how much of a curse oil is on economic development. This just came out a couple of days ago. This is a Swiss organization, um, the World Economic Forum. It's chartered by the Swiss government. I put this up here, it's a lot to read, but please note, more worrisome with the current prosperity postpones the adoption of structural reforms needed to achieve international competitive and sustain current growth. Oil booms have traditionally provided breathing space for governments and delayed the implementation of reform programs. These countries are not making the economic reforms they need to be moved into the 21st century, with very few exceptions, because the oil money is flowing in. When the oil money stops flowing in, and it will stop flowing in, then they will be bereft of the real needed economic reforms, real banking, 
real mortgage rates, a real stock market, something that's not controlled by the government. That just isn't happening because the oil wealth is flowing in. This is the closest I could get to a very troubling situation that happened last June, about a year ago. Terrorist attacks against this facility right here, the world's largest oil processing. You have to process oil before you can transport it. You have to draw out some of the volatile materials before you can put it in tankers. These guys got very close to a pipeline that pushes 90% of the Saudi Arabian crude oil move. And here's the potential consequences. I'll let you read this. I don't want to depress you too much, but we need to put this out. We thought oil prices were high now. That's a problem. Because if the oil is suddenly disrupted, the economies will very be quickly become bad. And that creates tremendous disappointment. And people who become disappointed join movements that we just don't like. Remember, 15 to the 19, 9-11 hijackers came from Saudi Arabia. And there were people disappointed because they thought the last oil boom was going to make them rich, and instead it disappointed them. And we've paid a terrible price for that. If you disenfranchise half your population, either by restricting them from the workplace altogether or marginalizing them in the workplace, you can't be competitive. This, from the Arab Human Development Report, it took a long time to get it released because it was controversial. To the credit of the authors, they are all Arabs, Saudi Arabians, Egyptians, Moroccans, Jordanians, Algerians who wrote this. It finally came out in December 2006. And you can see it. Economic activity rate, access to the workplace, promotion rates, protection under the law for women in the workplace. It's the lowest in the world. It's 69% in East Asia, where the economy is booming. It's 33% in the Arab world, where the economy is not booming. The world average is 56%. Why is it? It's because of Islam? Not necessarily. I would argue it's, this suggests it's more about culture. It's more about culture. This is the percent believing in gender equality in, in employment. U.S., Canada, Australia, okay, at least 70% say gender equality is important. You can see, West Europe. Here's other Islamic. South Asia, big population of Muslims. Here are the Arab countries down here at the bottom. It's not necessarily about Islam. It's about Arab culture which has been very slow to adopt the norms that women should be in the workplace. And again, you can't grow an economy if you don't fully allow access to the workplace by all people. Population growth rates. Wide births over deaths, immigration over emigration. These are population growth rates. This is a comparison. United States, by the way, has a pretty high population growth rates, but you'll notice that none of these countries, and I just selected these randomly, has a population growth rate of over one point something. Look down here. Look down here. These are the growth rates. Look at Japan down here. That's another problem. That's a big problem. Japanese are very worried about this, but they've got a different problem. Why does this matter? Because we're simply creating more people than there are jobs. And here's the consequence. These are the unemployment rates. These are the most recent unemployment rate figures. These came out a couple of weeks ago. Here are the unemployment rates in the countries that I just showed you. Okay, Argentina is having, still having some currency problems. In France, it's cool to be unemployed because the benefits are so generous. <laughs> but over here, look at the unemployment. These are the government figures, by the way. These are the official government figures. 
And the tragedy is the higher the population growth rate, the higher the unemployment. Look at this down here. Here's Gaza. 31% officially unemployed. Yemen, 35% officially unemployed. I think the number could be closer to 40 or 45 percent. Corruption. This is the Transparency International Corruption Index. Just came out, five years old. They just updated it. It's good to be number one. It's not good to be number 163. The higher the number, the more corruption. The Arab world is in blue. And the tragedy is, the tragedy is that the more corruption, the more poverty. The more poverty, the more corruption. Because in many cases, these countries have broken economies. And so to take care of unemployment, so people don't go join the opposition or join the Islamists, they give them jobs regulating things. So they can take bribes, and bribes become part of their income. So I want to operate a taxi in Cairo. I first of all have to get a taxi license, and then another taxi license, and then a license to buy gasoline, and then a lot of Egyptian pounds to carry around with me for every cop that stops me for no violation so I can buy them off. In the end, I can't afford it. But the real problem for corruption is not only that it erodes confidence in the government, but corruption is putting money into the hands of corrupt people rather than in the future. So again, there's no money for modernity, for education, for health care, for high technology. This is controversial. I'm not going to give you a lesson on Islam. We'd be here a long time. But I do want to connect Islam and the Arab world. Because Islam is the religion of most of the Arab world. Now, the Arabs are only 20% of the world's Muslim population. Keep that in mind. But the Arabs identify with Islam because they argue it's in our language. It was revealed in our culture, in our country, and spread by our armies. Because people needed it. Now, I offer you this statement by Richard Haas. Richard Haas worked in the National Security Council in the Bush administration, left a couple of years ago. You don't have to agree with everything he says, but I think this is important. The intellectual vacuum that has brought about from the failure of Arab nationalism and Arab socialism is increasingly being filled by religion. Religion is something that people in the Arab world are turning to increasingly for answers because they're frustrated. There was a big rise in political Islam in Egypt after the Egyptians lost the 1967 war to the Israelis. I was told that again by an Egyptian. There is a difference between the Sunnah and the Shia. I want to emphasize the politics rather than the theology. The theology isn't as different as the politics are. The Sunnah are the majority. They're about 85% of the Muslim world and a higher percentage in the Arab world. The Arabs tend to identify themselves with the Sunnah. There's exceptions, big exceptions. One being Iraq, the other Bahrain. Their spiritual homes are the old Arab, Mecca is everybody's spiritual home. Damascus and Baghdad, th those used to be the capitals of the old Sunnah empires. But the Shia, the partisans of Ali, or Shia Ali, those who believe that the prophet's son-in-law should have been the successor to the prophet and didn't become for 25 years, they're a minority but they're a majority in Bahrain and Iraq. Their spiritual home is Mecca, but it's also modern Iraq. I cannot emphasize enough. The Shia have their home, 
spiritually, not in Iran. Iran is a latecomer to the Shia faith, but in Iraq, and here's why. This is a map of the center of Iraq. Here's Baghdad, okay? Now, here's Karbala, the son of Ali, Hussein, was attacked with his followers at Karbala in 680. They were all massacred, except his son survived. Muslims today in the Shia faith, regardless of they're Arab or not, commemorate this every, this is known as Ashura. They commemorate this every day as though it happened yesterday. It is their mourning. It is their loss. It is their anger against the Sunnah for being responsible. Najaf. Ali is buried in Najaf. All Shia want to be buried in a Najaf. It is Samra, the hidden Imam who disappeared and will someday return according to Shia faith in 874, disappeared here. And finally, Kufa, the first capital of Ali. It's all in Iraq. And it's all controlled, and it has been controlled since the 16th century by Sunnah. And the Shia have been mourning to get it all back because they want control of the mosques, these wonderful mosques that they built. Um, this the tomb of, uh, of Ali. And this the most tragic. This is the Khsari Mosque in Samara, blown up a year ago. You can see the damage by Al-Qaeda. These Shia hold Al-Qaeda as much of an enemy as anybody else. We have something in common with them. This is what they do. We don't understand this. We don't understand the difference between the Sunni and the Shia because what they fought about doesn't matter anymore. It's not about the Khalif. There hasn't been a Caliphate since 1517 or 1924, if you want, when it moved to Turkey and Kamal Ataturk, the founder of modern Turkey, finally said, no more Khalif, we're, we're going to be secular. Make it go away. So what are the Sunni and the Shia fighting about? It's about grievance, it's about the past, and it's about power. That's what it's about. These differences go back to 680, and they go back to modern Iraq, and they're not going to go away anytime soon. They are not going to go away anytime soon. Okay, other pieces. Again, it's about power, it's about resentment, it's about politics. Now, a couple of other things. Not only the president, but others have warned about this, because it shows up on the Al-Qaeda websites. The real goal of radical Islam is to start by building a caliphate, an Islamic empire. How many of you have seen this? It came off of Islam. I can't figure out who did this, by the way, but somebody that shows up on lots and lots of kind of anti-jihadist websites, okay? Now, this is the United States of Islam, and what gets people's attention is this thing down here. After 100 years, it's all going to be green. And the president mentioned, this is a goal of Al-Qaeda. If you go to Uzbekistan, people may sign up to this because they, we don't have any future anyway. We're not even sure who we are. We were part of the Soviet Union for so long, we've lost our identity. But I go in and talk to my friends in the Arab world about this idea. Is this really something that you care about? Is this what you really want? <laughs> no. Why should we possibly care about it? For one thing, it has very little appeal for the Shia. They would be a distinct minority. But it also has very little appeal for Arabs. 
because they are also a minority in the Muslim world. But mostly they sit down with me and they say, look, we trust you, here's our view. How's that gonna solve our problems? You want the world to be green in 100 years? What about tomorrow? How does it deal with the Israelis? How does it deal with the Americans? How does it deal with corrupt governance? How does it deal with economic growth that's been negative? This is not something we care about. Don't worry about this. There's things to worry about. What has really happened in the Arab world is that they've lost faith in the community. They've lost faith in the nation. They're now becoming much more communitarian. It's about the family. It's about the tribe. It's about the neighborhood. That's their identity. That's why it's so difficult to unify Iraq, because in a sense, it's going through the same kind of disintegration that we see in the Arab world. What do I care about? I care about my neighborhood, because that's all I can control. Those are the only people I trust. I care about my clan. I care about my tribe. Tribes matter. We must, we must understand that. And let me conclude by talking a little bit about the Arab future. This has been a very pessimistic lecture. I'm not by nature a pessimist, although this is helping. <laughs> Remember that slide that I showed you about the Arab world in the United States? What if I had showed you that slide in 1980, and instead of the Arab world, I had China up there? Look at this. And I've gone back and done all the math on this. Lost every war since 1215. And who were they? The Mongols. Lost Okinawa, lost Korea, lost 300,000 square miles to a place called Russia. They've never gotten it back. Never finished in the top 45 in the 1980 Olympics earlier. Well, in some cases, they never showed up. When they did, they smoked so much, they couldn't compete. Not, not rank in the top 21 for Nobel Prizes, world's top 25 universities, none. If I had given this lecture in 1980 and put that up about China, what would you have thought about the future of China? It'd be pretty dismal, wouldn't it? Okay, welcome to China today. I grant you there are parts of China that are deeply impoverished and didn't get in on this. But the Chinese economy is growing at a rate of 9% per year. That's some of the highest sustained economic growth we've seen. It's not democratic. It's not gonna be democratic anytime soon but it has certainly taken off economically in ways that we just did not anticipate. And this is a piece of it. Let me show you another picture. World's most expensive hotel. World's tallest hotel, too. You want to know how much the most expensive room is? Don't ask. It's $24,000 a night. Okay. Um, one of the great restaurants here, this is in Dubai. This is in Dubai. This is in Bahrain, Formula One racing. I used to be a car guy, so I put a car pictures up here. Europeans coming down to shop for gold. The Gulf, the exception of Kuwait, is doing pretty well economically. Okay, it's got oil, but it's also had wise rulers who understood that the future is in globalization. We must attract tourists. We must make our population internet savvy, medically savvy, Media savvy, media city is there. And many of the commercials in the Arab world, in fact, people from Hollywood, believe this, are going to, uh, going to Dubai to learn how to do media. Internet city, Siemens, IBM, Apple, all the big computer companies. Medical city, they're doing medical tourism. You want a gallstone removed? This is a place to do it and you can have a good time. Stay here if you've got the money. If you've got the money, absolutely. My point is, though, that they're succeeding. Tourism is going up by 30% each year. A lot of Russians, by the way, are going down there. This is a small slice of the Arab world. 
I don't want to suggest to you that in 10 years or 20 or 30 years, the rest of the Arab world is going to look like this. But the Arabs are looking at this place and saying, it's not just about oil money. It's about joining the rest of the world. It's about structural reforms. It's about listening to the IMF and the World Bank. It's about changing things. This is something, at least, is becoming a beacon to many others in the Arab world. This is interesting. This came out last week. Okay? This came out last week. World Economic Forum in the Middle East. Boston's Consulting Group and all these guys just came out. And look at this. Arabs are investing in their own home region. When I would go to Egypt, I'd sit down with rich Egyptians. I'd, Where are you spending your money? Eh, Italy? Japan? Malaysia? Why not here? And they just laugh. That's changing. That's good. That's changing. They're beginning to understand that investment must move in to real estate, to infrastructure development, to highways, to hospitals that work. And they're beginning to see a difference. This is astounding. The World Value Survey, conducted by scholars at the University of Michigan and Harvard University in 2002, went out with a bunch of questions. And one of the questions they said was, is democracy the best form of government? Yes or no? And look at this. Arab countries scored the highest. And is authoritarian rule bad? Yes, Arab countries say. It's not that the Arab street doesn't want democracy. It's not that the Arab street wants autocracy. It's that the presence of strong autocratic governments continues on. And that's one of the reasons why they blame us. If you didn't give Egypt so much foreign aid, we wouldn't be saddled with this autocratic. Well, it's not so simple. Uh, but look at this. Here's, uh, here's the US, Canada, and Australia all the way down here. Their value for democracy is larger than ours. Wait until they go through a presidential election. They'll get wise. <laughs> But it's not about attitude. But this is the most important piece. This the Arab Human Development Report that came out in 2002, written again by Arabs. Please read this carefully. Because all that stuff I started with, the culture, the emphasis on the past, the sense that there is no future, this is a powerful, powerful, powerful statement. We cannot enclose ourselves contented with living on the history, the past, and the inherited culture alone in a world whose victorious powers reach into all corners of the earth. We can't hide from it. We can't isolate. We must become global. And this from Al Jazeera. You don't have to like Al Jazeera to recognize that not only do they criticize the United States and the Israelis, they also criticize the very autocratic governments that we often support. And this is so important. This just came out last September. A London-based Arab scholar appears in Al Jazeera the colonial powers created the modern Arab state, he argues. He's right. They borrowed it from the colonial countries. The Arab state has always carried deficiency and impotence as part of its genetic makeup. Only modernity will solve this problem, and the Arab scholars and mouthpieces like Al Jazeera are saying this. You don't have to like Al Jazeera to realize it's breathing fresh air into the Arab debate. They're not saying it's our fault. It's not the Israelis' fault. It's deeply rooted in our culture, and that is so important. This is a deeply, deeply, deeply traditional place. It will have downs before it comes up, but change is coming. It's coming slowly. Our role in it, I think, will be minimal. 
People point to the administration and keep on saying, why don't you do more? Why don't you do more? Why don't you do more? That's the wrong answer, I think. I don't think we need to send over Jimmy Carter or Bill Clinton or Condoleezza Rice or anybody else to try to fix things because they don't trust us, because we're part of their legacy, and because they've got the capability in the Arab world to fix it themselves. There are new generations of younger Arab scholars, journalists, writers, who are very critical about the violent use of, uh, misuse of Islam, who are very critical about their own governments, who are very critical even about their own culture, who are saying, we can't continue to slide backward. You've got to listen to us. Now, sometimes they get listened to. Sometimes they wind up in jail. But they are out there. The Arab world may show considerable progress. It's going to take time. We must be patient. We can help where we're asked. But we also must trust the fact that in the end, as China has changed, so too will the Arab world change. And at one, some point, we need to step out of it so at least we don't become the fall guy, the target for everybody's criticism. So they can turn around and understand that in many cases, while outsiders may have brought them their problems, they are now their problems, and they're their problems to solve. I think they can do it. But I think our role in there needs to be standing on the sidelines and helping only where we can, but not pushing them into directions that in many cases we have encouraged them not to follow.